Welcome to the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, where the principles of person-centered care come alive. In this episode, experts from St. Ambrose University and the community will discuss the practice and history for incorporating weight-neutral concepts in a person-centered way to assist the individual in attaining their health and wellness goals and decrease weight-related stigma in our communities. This week's podcast is hosted by Sarah Stevens, who is the founder of The Beautiful Project. Welcome to the IPCC podcast brought to you by the Institute for Person-Centered Care in collaboration with KALA-FM. I'm Sarah Stevens, your host for today's podcast. I am also the founder of The Beautiful Project. Our episode today is titled, All Bodies Are Good Bodies, and I am going to facilitate a conversation with my guests around weight and health in a person-centered approach, which brings me to my guests. It is a privilege to spend some time with these two extraordinary women today. They are both experts in their own fields. Let me offer an opportunity for an introduction. First, I have Dr. Cheryl True. Cheryl, would you mind sharing a quick intro about who you are and what you do with the audience? Sure, my name is Cheryl True. I am a family and lifestyle medicine physician. Uh, I'm interested in a lot of the pillars of health that include nutrition, physical activity, stress reduction, um, I mean, uh, substance, risky substance use, sleep health, and social connections. Perfect. That sounds uh, like great qualifications to be on the microphone for this conversation today. Colleen, this is Colleen Doak. Colleen, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? I'm a nutritional epidemiologist, and I've been working in the field of largely undernutrition in low- and middle-income countries in the context of poverty. Excellent. And then what was the rest of your, um, just to kind of contextualize where we're going to head in this conversation, that was where you sort of started or wanted to focus, but where did the rest of your research take you? When I started in this area of work, I was looking in low- and middle-income countries just uh, as Um, body weights globally were increasing. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be using terminology that I'm not entirely comfortable with here. Um, We use clinical terms of obesity and overweight to reflect a body weight level, a a body mass index that's greater than 25 for overweight and greater than or equal to 30 for what we call obesity, clinical obesity. Mm -hmm. Um, Now that's entirely based on body weight and it's not a really great measure for understanding people's actual health or body composition, Mm -hmm. but it's something that we in epidemiology use to document what's happening in human health. Mm -hmm. And more recently, uh, the body mass index measures have been applied to children. And as I saw that emerge and uh, the decisions to apply labels like overweight and obesity were really difficult uh, Mm -hmm. when you're talking about children. And I think it made me rethink what we were doing also for adults as well. Yeah. So that is really important context for this conversation as well. And then finally, I want to provide some context for myself in this conversation. What sort of qualifies me to be at the table 
uh, is my lived experience as a woman navigating the world in a fat body. Now with The Beautiful Project, I do a lot of work that is intended to uproot weight stigma and discrimination. Um, but really that comes from my own lived experience. And so if we're going to talk about a person-centered approach, I kind of want to contextualize the rest of our conversation in a personal story, if that works for both of you. So um, I self-identify as a woman navigating the world in a fat body. I use fat in this context as a descriptor of tissue because that really what it, that is really what it is. Um, so we have been trained to understand the word as harmful to people, hurtful to people, and it's because it's been used in ways to discriminate, to apply stigma, but the reality is, it's a, it is, th is that it is a descriptor of tissue. And that has been an important movement for me to claim that simply as a characteristic, not unlike the fact that I have curly hair and blue eyes. So a little bit of backstory for me. I, by the time I was 11, I was in Weight Watchers. If I look back at pictures of that experience um, or during that time in my life, my body looked like an average 11-year-old's body. My mom, um, absorbing a lot of the narratives about weight and health, she was really looking to be preventative when it came to her children being overweight. And so I was in Weight Watchers by the time I was 11, and I really see that experience as formative in my relationship with food and body. By the time I was 14, I was living with a full-blown eating disorder that was really my lived reality for many years. My challenge was my weight never dipped to a place that would have been considered dangerous or causing intervention. In spite of the fact that I was consuming mm, easily less than 600 calories a day for weeks on end. Uh, so I was very ill for a lot of my adolescence and early adulthood. Then I had children, and since I've had children, that's really where if I look back, I, I used to describe my lived experiences always living in a fat body, but the reality is I wasn't. That was enormous amount of dysmorphia, and really that label would have been more accurate after I had children. Since then, I've gained and lost thousands of pounds. It's I'm an extremely willful human being. If you know me for five seconds, you know that. Uh, which brings me really to the moment at which I want to tell a specific story and then invite the two of you to kind of share from your own perspectives about it. So fast forward, I was in my late 30s. I was being treated for thyroid disorder. And I saw an endocrinologist who I care about very much, who cares about me very much, believes very clearly that I have made gargantuan efforts to change my body. And in a conversation where I had gained weight, uh, her recommendation to me was that she could prescribe amphetamines for me. And when I asked her about the long-term effects or sort of what the long game was in this, what she shared was, I can keep you on it for a long period of time so long as you come in for liver and kidney function tests. Now, my liver and my kidneys were functioning really well at the time, still are. Um, she also talked to me about side effects like uh, heart palpitations and I won't sleep anymore and I will very likely be fine subsisting on the five to 700 calories a day. And if I wanna stay at a lower body weight that I would need to maintain that for the rest of my life. For me, this experience was a jumping off point. Every 
diet, every decision, every attempt to shrink my body kind of came to fruition in that moment. And I decided that I was done being determined by weight stigma. I was done letting my life be determined by diet culture. I was done letting my life be determined by these external forces. But what I really want to know, and I, you know, as we look at a population that we hear continues to get larger in body size, as we look at a population that right now they say 67% of women are considered plus size in their clothing, um, this, I know this experience isn't just my own. I know it because I talk to people in large bodies all the time. I know it because I'm listening to fat activists. So because this is an individual person-centered story, but it is also a real person-centered reality for more than just me, I want us to talk a little bit about how we got here, how we got to a place that that sort of a recommendation can make sense, really, in a medical model. And I think that's important to start there, but then talk about maybe how we got here in understanding um, the BMI component and all of those pieces as well. So Cheryl, I want to open it up to you first uh, as, as the um, medical professional. I w I'd love to have you speak a little bit to what you see in that experience and, and how we got here to this place where that kind of an intervention can make sense or broader than that, how we're treating people in large bodies in a medical or clinical setting. Yeah, thank you for sharing your experience. I think from a physician standpoint, we often don't hear that yeah. side of the story. Yeah, uh, We often look at things from a very clinical fashion and it's often a very maybe rushed experience. Sure. Um, as of family physician seeing people from all age ranges and looking at the chronic diseases that we see in our country things like hypertension uh, heart disease diabetes you know just all of these collections of th diseases that we're trained to treat I think we're often not trained to look at the the behavioral aspects of our health or the environmental aspects as a society that have allowed some of these diseases to really um, flourish throughout the world. Uh, we, we look at things from perhaps in, in a clinical setting as a set of data points mm -hmm. that don't always reflect the person in front of you. Uh, we may see a, a height, a weight, a body mass index. We may see um, very little information on a person's habits. Um, we probably know very little about what that person wants uh, from the visit. And we aren't very well trained in how to ask that. Mm, that's such an important point. We aren't very well trained in how to ask that. I think that's a critical component to this conversation because one of the things that, that's been important to me in my healing is to not demonize the people who let me down. And, and a part of how I got there is in my own person-centered approach to a physician. Understanding that you are part of a culture with a certain training that put you in a position to not necessarily even have the time to ask me anything else about what I was looking for or about how I wanted to get there. And, and it, there are very few people in the world who dive into an area where they don't know what, where they feel uncertain about what they're doing. So when it comes to behavioral interviewing, which is what you're talking about in some ways, if you're not trained to do that, 
but what you are trained to do is assess data and then make a recommendation based on the data, then of course this is this l can look on paper like a reasonable recommendation. And if you look at the things that are collected and looked at and that clinics, uh, hospitals are often uh, judged on and rated on are how are your patients, uh, how, how well controlled are they? Yeah. Are their blood pressures under this level? Are their uh, measures of their blood sugars under this level? Where are their body mass index? Did you address this problem in your note? And so some of those things that go into our records really don't reflect the conversations that we could have. Right, and they probably limit, that sounds extremely limiting. When you're being, when you're being, when you're being measured as a physician on these outcomes, but they're not necessarily person-centered outcomes, then you end up in sort of this impossible position. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. Colleen, you're up. I want, I want you to share with the audience, we've had lots of conversations historically about how we got here. So um, I'm just going to turn it over to you. Talk a little bit about, um, from your area of expertise, about how we got here on a larger level and then how it boiled down to this individual experience. Okay, so I'm going to start with the idea that epidemiologists, we used BMI, body mass index, as a proxy. So if we had had direct measures, hypertension, blood glucose levels, we wouldn't have been measuring body mass index at all. Mm -hmm. What we found, we as a community of researchers, found was that with economic growth, there was a vast change in people's lifestyles and in terms of food availability, it was processed foods, high in fat, high in salt. It became increasingly challenging for people to get exercise. They were relying largely on motorized transport instead of walking, but also the kinds of occupations people had were different. They were more sedentary. Mm -hmm. So all of these factors together resulted in what we, we can talk about as an epidemic of increased body mass. And it has to do with our environment. Now, as we saw this, we raised the alarm bells because we as a community found that there was a very rapid increase in body weight to the extent that very young children at the ages of 9 and 10 were developing type 2 onset diabetes related to the environment that they were living in. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was uh, we need to raise the alarm bells, we need to catch this early and prevent. That message was built on the assumption that prevention and treatment were possible for people with large bodies, mm -hmm. with pe people with excess body fat or adipose tissue. Mm -hmm. Since then, we have not found treatments that work in the long run. So pause that and say that again. Since then, we have not found treatments that work in the long run since on then, an individual level. Since then, we have not found treatments that work in the long run That's so at important. an individual level. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that we, we have been taught to believe that it is an individual responsibility and that I have failed to meet that responsibility. And what you're telling me is that on a larger scale, what you've discovered is that those treatments are not available to us yet. Initially, we thought it would be easier for people to address this individually because community-level interventions would be too difficult. Mm -hmm. Now I see the paradigm is shifting, and people are finding in the research community and otherwise that it actually might be easier mm. to start shifting the environment 
building bike lanes, getting people out walking, talking to the food industry about not targeting their advertisements to children, mm -hmm. and a number of other factors that would really change our environment, our food and activity environment. Mm. And I think that's the place where I, th I think we can go next is a little bit of that direct conversation around. Um, actually, the other thing I do want to ask before we go there, in your research, ha what have you discovered in general about the impact of weight stigma on people in large bodies? I have not directly uh, studied weight stigma. Mm -hmm. um, I have looked at stigma and other diseases. Mm -hmm. What I have found is that our the, the more we increase our recommendations at the individual level, the more focus we give on individuals for something we know to be an environmental issue, mm -hmm. the worse the problem is getting. Mm. So there is widespread recommendation or recognition mm -hmm. that this problem is clearly an environmental problem. And the more we focus on the individual in a clinical setting, the harder it is for individuals to deal with that because weight loss, especially if you're talking about a 600 or 800 calorie diet, that's a starvation diet. Yes. That will cause people to lose muscle mass and increase later their body fat. Mm -hmm. So that will actually make things worse for that individual. It's so, I have such a confluence of emotion when I hear that because one of the things I will often say that has been true in my entire life is that we prescribe for people in large bodies what we treat for people in thin bodies. In spite of the fact that it is, I understand that it is, it feels like the most, the quickest form of control or trying to acquire an outcome. I understand that, but it has zero long-term vision involved in it. And I can't tell you how many times that that level of dieting has been recommended to me and not just by Weight Watchers who uh, stands to make money off of me, but also everywhere I look. That's, that's, that's not six to 800 calories for me. Although people wouldn't look at my body and assume this, it is a very, that is a very common level of calories that I've eaten over many, many years of my life. And just to know that it has that longer term negative impact, uh, counterproductive is just, it is a confluence of emotion for me. Something with anger and rage, I'm not sure. As another example, I recently I was curious what some of the top researchers were still thinking along these lines because I remember attending conferences in Europe where people got up and said, we know what the problem is, we know what the solution is, uh, let's just do it. And I went back to the research of some of those individuals where they were claiming we have treatments that work. Mm. I looked into what those treatments were. They were food replacement mm. powders prescribed for somebody to not eat real food for over a month. And I don't think that any nutritionist would say that that's a healthy diet. Right. It's one that reduces your weight, right? But when we look at health in a broader, from a broader lens as well, and even, even in a direct physiological way, uh, the impact can't be <laughs> blanket positive there. I do want, um, I want to be able to move a little bit and give Cheryl some space too to answer, uh, to move toward this idea of, well, first of all, do you think we can do better in this conversation between weight and health? And if so, from a, from a physician's perspective, how might we do that? That's a good question. Um, 
yes, we can do better. Mm -hmm. Easy answer. How? Mm -hmm. That's the hard part. Um, You know, I think if we look at a lot of the, how did we get to this point where where we're recognizing some of the stuff is very important too. It it needs to change some of our clinical model of how we approach Mm -hmm. and, and look at how people in in the general population want to see things addressed as well. Uh, it, it, like Colleen said, we, we know that there's this huge environmental impact. If we look at the, the environment in which our human body has developed over thousands and thousands of years, we're in a very artificial environment that has placed huge stresses upon us that our bodies are really responding in this very appropriate way right. um, to what they're being faced with, the ultra-processed foods, the abundance of calories that really lack the nutritional value that real food would produce, the changes in our occupations, the changes in our uh, neighborhoods, our ability to even move around. So how do we bring that into a clinical setting in a seven to 10 minute office visit? We can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are ways That's to true. start that conversation, but we're not going to solve mm-hmm. any of this problem in those little incremental um spots of time. I, I like to think of lifestyle medicine as something that happens outside the clinic and that our our perception and awareness of what happens in the other, you know, 364 days, 23 minutes and mm-hmm. 45, you know, 23 hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, that impacts our, our patient population. And the healthcare profession is very much affected by this too. And sometimes I think even our own perceptions uh, as we're sitting there talking to a patient affect how we're interacting. There are studies that look at physicians who struggle with weight and which of their patients are they comfortable addressing this issue with mm-hmm. or, or the opposite direction. If a patient sees a physician who has um, maybe an issue that they're heavier than what that person perceives as a normal weight for a physician should be, they may not always have um, the confidence that that person can help them if they're looking for an answer. So I think the 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 problems we're looking at are very complex, and a lot of medicine is very algor you know has a lot of algorithms. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that we're looking at. Oh, this is the problem. Is it this or this? Yes or no? If it's this, we go down this pathway. We do these things, and this is where some of our data has maybe driven us. But we're also seeing that the outcomes of that are not the outcomes that we are shooting for. Mm-hmm. I think that's wonderful too, to, to talk about the complexity. And it's one of those situations that I think about. Th- sometimes we, when we look at complex situations, it's easy to go, well, we just have to find a quicker fix or we got to go to the thing that's easy. But I love that you're saying it's complex, but yeah, we can do better. Let's just, I think, keep talking about how we can do better. And that component of looking outside of the clinic is critical. That's I have been the healthiest overall the last three years of my life uh, because I engaged in health-promoting behaviors that had nothing to do with my weight. And uh, I've done things in the last three years I never thought I was going to be able to do. I quit drinking. I never thought that was going to be a reality for me. But that was a movement toward health that had nothing to do with weight that has changed my entire life. Uh, So I think when we start to understand those broader conversations outside of the clinic, we're only placed in a position that's more favorable. Colleen, I want to give you a chance too, as we wrap up, um, just to share first, do you think we can do better? And if so, how? I think we can do better. I think what we can do is recognize that weight is a proxy and weight is one data point. It's not the end point. Mm 
Mm -hmm. And so what we've done, unfortunately, is that in a clinical setting and even in public health, a lot of times we have reversed those. Our first data point was the weight. That showed us there was a problem. Mm -hmm. And the problem is not the weight. The problem is the environment we live in, mm -hmm. which is unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And so we need to create better environments and encourage people to, all people of all weights, to be able to exercise more and to live in a community that is more affirming and healthful. Mm, I love that. That's excellent. Ladies, I am so grateful for your time, for your expertise, for your storytelling, for your willingness to have the conversation with me. I'm confident the audience um, will take something from it. And my hope is, is that it just continues the conversation moving forward. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, brought to you by St. Ambrose University's Institute for Person-Centered Care and KALA-FM. Next month, we will discuss complex care management and hotspotting through person-centered practices. You can learn more about the Institute for Person-Centered Care by connecting with us on Facebook and Twitter.